the right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, we had a massive reaction to our piece with Dan Sweeney yesterday when we spoke about the possibility that we might be overdosing our children with sugar. But is it possible our reaction to that message is actually in itself an overreaction? Well, one man who thinks we need less hysteria and more personal responsibility is the campaigns manager at Action on Consumer Choice and author of Panic on a Place, How Society Developed an Eating Disorder. Uh, Rob Lines, you're very welcome to the programme. Hello. You think we're overreacting in relation to this supposed or so-called sugar epidemic? I think so, yeah, because um, our sugar uh, consumption hasn't gone up. Uh, in fact, in, in the UK, I know that sugar consumption has been in decline for a, for a few years now. Um, so there's, there's no need to, to react from that point if it's not like it's taking off. But also because um, when it comes to sugar... Um, there is so much choice in the market now that people can easily replace sugar with something else if they they want to, and that choice should be left up to them. So on, in relation to sugary drinks, um, where, where the, most of the sort of discussion about taxes is happening, right alongside the sugary version of most of the popular drinks in the, you know, on the shop shelf or on the in the supermarket, you'll find the zero sugar version, whether it's Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi or, or whatever. So... There's, there's plenty of choice out there for people, especially in that kind of uh, product. So I, I think, that, I mean, it's one thing to advise people, maybe you might want to cut down on your sugar. That might be an easy way of cutting out a few calories. But to try and tax people, I think is a step too far. Mm. What seems, though, inarguable is that we are gaining more weight as a people. I mean, Ireland, uh, for example, is on the verge of becoming the most obese country in the world. I mean, that it's hard to ignore that reality. And certainly a lot of food experts say one of the reasons for that, one of the primary reasons for that is our increased intake of sugar. Well, I first of all, um, it, it's most parts of the developed world where that, there was a big rise in the obesity during the 80s and 90s and into the early part of this century, um, that's all plateaus. So... What, the people who have, are likely to gain the weight, as it were, seem to have gained the weight, and it's pretty much stopped. So even in America, for the, the majority of people, although they are fatter than uh, you know people in, on general, in general in Britain and uh, Ireland, uh, they are their obesity rates have plateaued for the last ten years or so. So there isn't a time bomb waiting to go off, as some people like to claim. Um, and it would be much better if we had a, a clearer idea of why some people seem to accumulate a lot of weight and other people have no difficulty in keeping the weight off. And understanding those processes would be much more useful than picking on one particular product and saying, we, we have to demonize this and you have to cut down on it. Because I just don't think that that's going to have any great impact on people's waistlines. Okay, interesting to hear, to hear you say that um, the, the the issue of obesity has kind of levelled off because... I mean, the survey we were quoting from yesterday suggested that by, I think it was 2035, uh, 80% of the population of Ireland or close to it could be obese. That doesn't sound like it's levelling it off uh, levelling off to me. That sounds like it's a problem that's getting worse all the time. Uh, well, the history of uh, forecasts about obesity rates uh, are is pretty terrible. 
So um, yeah, certainly I know from the UK equivalent of that kind of survey and one done recently as well, that they always try to project like there's a straight line from a few years ago and say, oh, well, if you look at the straight line, then we're, we're all going to be incredibly overweight um, in 20 years' time or something. But when you look back at the previous forecasts, they've all been way out. Um, so I would take that sort of stuff with a pinch of salt. I think there's a, there's a certain amount of uh, sort of uh, political spin, if you like, with those forecasts that the people who are minded to think that obesity is going to become a big problem in the future uh, are quite happy to extrapolate in that way. The reality is that when you actually look, look at actual data of, of people's waistlines and of their body mass index, it's gone nowhere for the past few years. Do you think there's a, is this a kind of a a middle class disdain towards certain type of foods that we're seeing here? Is is it is that your contention? Yeah, I would, I, well, I think, I think there's, a, there's a large slice of that. I think the, the middle class people have two problems. First of all, they seem to be more anxious about their health than almost anybody else. So, um, and that's projected into looking at the entire population. And the second is, as you say, snobbery towards the tastes of um, you know, working class people. Um, so we have just had a big row here about uh, the Labour Party in the UK refusing money from McDonald's. It's like, well, you know, McDonald's have gone as sort of uber right on as you can get um, in terms of using organic milk and free-range eggs or whatever. But that's not enough to satisfy some people. Some people just see McDonald's as big food and, uh, you know, unacceptable just for those reasons, regardless of the fact that actually they're, they're successful because they're popular and actually people um, like their food. I mean, they don't eat it constantly, but you know, they do like their food. So there is this real snobbery um, in, in middle-class values. And it, it's been like that for decades in many ways, that, you know, that, that, that it's, food has been a, a way by which you can distinguish yourself. It's kind of like a status symbol, that I eat organic or I eat local food um, I ex- ate more expensive food, and it's those people over there, the great unwashed, who eat, eat you know, this kind of mass-produced food, even though the mass-produced food is actually, by objective standards, generally pretty good in terms of nutrition. Is it, though? I mean, that's great. I mean, I'm just wondering. I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with what, you, what you're saying, but, I mean, if you're going to be a snob about something, surely food is a pretty good thing to be snobbish about. Uh, it's not going to do you any harm it's probably going to do you a lot of good and I mean you talk about you know a lot of the, the sort of mass produced food the reality is a lot of it isn't very good for you a lot of it does make you unhealthy and it just is not in your long term interest to be consuming it well I mean if, if, going back to McDonald's you know, if you look at the sort of nutritional content of a Big Mac meal I mean alright maybe having a massive sugary drink with it wouldn't be the smartest idea from uh, from purely health grounds but, but other than that it's actually got a great range of vitamins and minerals and uh, all the nutrients I, want. I mean I wouldn't want to eat just Big Mac meals I want some variety in my diet uh, in terms of nutrition but but otherwise it's absolutely fine I mean that's certainly a match for the you know, the Falafel salad or whatever, you know, it's a friendly thing to eat right now um, in terms of nutrition. I wouldn't really wouldn't uh, worry about that too much. I mean, yeah, the, the old sort of things that your mother used to say to you about a little bit of everything does you good is, is basically sound advice still, you know, that 
uh, yeah, don't be a complete vegetable dodger uh, is about as as far as I would go in terms of the quality of nutritional advice. Otherwise, whether something is mass produced or whether it is produced by uh, a, a farmer you know personally from ten miles down the road uh, isn't going to make a great deal of difference to your you know, health outcomes. The, the, our health is determined by a whole wide range of different things. You know, and things like smoking and maybe drinking too much are probably worse for you than you know, eating mass-produced food because actually most of it's absolutely fine. And yet, when you compare, certainly in Ireland, I, I assume it's the same in Britain, when you compare us to, to 40 years ago, it is like chalk and cheese, um, no pun intended. I mean, you know, you the number of overweight people in, in Ireland 40 years ago and obese people is a fraction of what it uh, is today. And there's no getting away from that fact. And that, presumably, sugar has a big role to play in that. I don't think so. I think, I mean, one interesting thing that's happened in the last sort of 30 years or so, for example, is that we got told to eat low-fat diets, and, uh, you know, cut down on your fat, and people did that. And food manufacturers came out with foods that were low in fat. And what they did was, to, to make them taste something, they replaced fat with sugar. Um, but I think that, um, so, so that, that's a plausible cause of it, but I think that that's the, the ultimate cause is misguided health advice in the first place trying to tell us you know, how, how we should eat. And also, I think that um, if you look at average weights rather than like the number of people who are obese, actually, they haven't got up nearly as much as you might think. Most people are still either of normal weight or mildly chubby. And it's, you know, so, it, as I said earlier, it's, it, the real question is, why do some people pile on a lot of weight? And obviously, there are a, a small proportion of society who are very, very fat and would probably prefer not to be very fat. Uh, and being able to help them and explain to them what it is that makes them fat, what is it about their body's reaction to food that makes them fat, would be much more useful than lecturing the whole of society about um, our eating habits, because I think that's completely unnecessary and probably counterproductive. OK, we'll leave it there. Uh, Rob Lyons, author of Panic on a Plate, How Society Developed an Eating Disorder and, of course, Campaigns Manager at Action on Consumer Choice. Thanks indeed for joining us on The Right Hook. Back in a moment. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie now you heard it on the news I'm sure throughout the day the long awaited children's hospital has been given the go ahead construction is expected to start at St James uh, on the south side of Dublin later this year uh, Health Minister Leo Varadkar was speaking to Jonathan Healy on the lunchtime show earlier here's a little of what he had to say about the location Yeah look I appreciate that there's been uh, a long and lengthy debate about uh, the right site um, there's never been a consensus uh, on uh, where the hospital should be located you know People suggested everything from at Lone to Newlands Cross uh, to, to you name it. But, um, you know, we have a system for deciding things on planning grounds anyway. And uh, that's on board Panola. 
and uh, there was two to three weeks of oral hearings at the end of the year uh, and last year everyone had a chance to make their presentation everyone had a chance to cross-examine other people's presentations and on board Panola which is the independent expert planning body in the state has granted planning permission but the, the argument and, and bear in mind this is the same body that didn't grant permission for the matter some years ago OK to discuss the uh, the children's hospital and indeed it's long road to getting that green light we're joined by Frank MacDonald former environment editor of the Irish Times and I think it's fair to say somebody who was very influential um, when the the original proposal was for the Matter Hospital, Frank was very critical of that decision and that it was ultimately upheld by Embroad Panala, which is why it's now at St. James's Hospital. Frank, are you happy that's given been given the go ahead? We're going to talk about the sort of the medical arguments for a little later uh, in a few moments, but just on on a sort of a your your bailiwick well, I mean, is obviously planning. It, it you know it is a welcome decision. Um, I mean, there are still doubts about whether St. James's Hospital is actually the optimum site for this whole development. Um, but, you know, it's certainly better than what was offered on offer from the matter um, um, years, several years ago, uh, which led on board Panola to re- reject And, the and what about, because that, 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 that was gone, well, that was, what, what about the other the people talking about an M50 Greenfield well, site? I mean, it, it, you know, it's supposed to be the National Children's Hospital. So, you know, it has to be located somewhere in Dublin. Um, the argument for the for M50 locations really were that 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 they that people would be able to get to them from other parts of Ireland quicker than to have to negotiate the traffic in dense yeah. inner city Dublin, and you know the James's site is quite a tight site, um, you know in a neighbourhood that's you know not very big wide roads or anything else like that. You know, there are obvious traffic implications uh, for this, but I mean, that's all covered in the Board Planola decision. Uh, they took everything into account. And in fact, the members of the board accompanied the senior planning inspector, uh, Tom Rabette, who, who conducted the oral hearing last year. They accompanied him to the site and had a look at the existing site, which includes, by the way, the old Catholic chapel of St. James's Hospital, which is due for demolition and which the board has ruled uh, must be fully recorded before it's demolished uh, so that there would be a record of it in the future. Um, And so the board took the whole thing very, very seriously. All of the members of the board, I think there's uh, eight or or nine of them there now, uh, were involved in this decision, um, just as the previous board were involved in in rejecting the matter proposal. Um, the, The... Architecturally, I think the scheme is a lot better than what was previously proposed. Um, it's certainly nothing like the scale that was was proposed for the Matter site, uh, which uh, would have been um, you know, a, an enormous slab, you know, rising to a height of about over yeah. 80 metres and extending along Eccles Street for 160 metres. So it's not going to have that kind of a huge visual impact on the city. Um, it's also served by the Lewis line, don't forget. I mean, there is a, there's going to be a stop right outside the the the, um, the southern end of the hospital, close to where the children's hospital is going to be built, um, in addition to the stop that's already at the other end. OK. The, the text coming in already and you can already anticipate what the text will be. They should have built it in the M50. It's much easier to get to the M50. You have limitless car parking out there. I I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I I have you know I've I've a strong view, views on this. I don't think it should be on the M50. I actually believe in the idea of cities where you build things in the city, you have proper density that allows for public transport. I don't like this idea. Like, why don't we move O'Connell Street to the M50 well, while I mean, we're at it? I mean, this 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 has been a, 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 an argument. 
uh, from the outset, of course. Um, but I agree with you uh, that that a major facility like that this should be located in the centre of Dublin. Um, and you can argue about whether James's Hospital is in the centre as such, but it's certainly in the inner city. And the inner city is the most accessible place in Ireland. Um, you know, all of the bus services converge on the city centre. You know, uh, the Lewis is running there. You know, uh, Houston Station is not very far away. The M50 itself See, people is not very far away. people will say in response so to that, on. Frank, the argument in response to that is <coughs> you don't bring a sick child to hospital yeah. and public transport. Yes, I think that that is true. But on the other hand, there are very few such um, major emergencies where, uh, where parents would have to bring a sick child just like that to uh, the hospital. Normally, uh, you know, these things are not done on, on an emergency uh, basis. Appointments, you've got staff yeah, coming you've got, there. Yeah, you've, you've, got got a, you've got, yes, you do. And, and I, I think that that's one of the biggest problems about hospitals is that there is the huge volume of staff car parking uh, that's involved, which, d- of course, directly encourages them to use their cars to travel to and from, uh, to and from work. You know, uh, the board's decision, um, uh, one of the conditions, they've set down 17 conditions in relation to this scheme. And one of the conditions is that there should be a minimum of 20 places permanently available uh, for parents delivering sick children to the hospital. Um, Emer- emergency parking, emer- basically. basically emergency parking. And uh, but don't forget also there are ambulances that will serve the hospital. And if a child is really sick, I mean, obviously an ambulance is a much preferable alternative worth, to worth, a parent's car. Worth pointing out as well, the M50 this morning wasn't exactly flowing freely. No. And in 10 years' time, I think there's a very good chance I think that, that the that M50 is, will be the I, car park it was 10 I years ago. I think that that is also true. And this is despite the fact that we've already spent a billion euro upgrading the M50 uh, it, to make it uh, three lanes in each direction and to reorganise the whole, all of the interchanges and so on. So, you know, the M50 is a problem. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it was originally meant to cater for national traffic seeking to bypass Dublin. But as we know, it's become basically a, a distributor route for, uh, for commuters and for others uh, uh, seeking access to the city area. I suppose the other point that is worth making, it is the National Children's Hospital, but... For the majority, the the majority of people who are who are attending this on a daily basis will be coming from the Dublin area. They will, and, and, and it's it's. I I would argue it's easier to get to St James's Hospital from most places in the Dublin area than it is to get out to the M50. I would have I would have thought so. Um, it de- obviously depends on where you're living and and how long you have to travel. Uh, you know, I think that. You know, an act of faith of some kind is being is being required here. Um, in a sense, that this is going to work. I mean, the investment involved is massive. You know, it's going to be at least six hundred and fifty million euro. Hospitals are not cheap things to build. Um, they're like airports. Hospitals and airports are the most complex things around. And uh, uh, this hospital, uh, a, a great deal of design uh, work has gone into it already. I think they've they've ticked all of the boxes in the way that the matter proposal didn't, um, and I think that it's a good thing that a decision has finally been made to go ahead with a hospital for the uh, sick children of Ireland uh, to provide them with the kind of first class facilities that they, that they deserve. So you know, um, I'm I'm glad that a decision has been made, but uh, it remains to be seen how it's going to work itself out in, in when the hospital finally becomes operational. I think in 2020. Two last questions: um, Are we obsessed about parking and in this country? I mean, it strikes me 
most of the time spent about debating a children's hospital is about park. Is yeah. about park. I, I mean, know, yeah. I keep saying I, keep, I, mean, I have this argument with people all the time, and you know, my most people think the M50 is a better place yeah. for it. I keep saying to them, "What's the best children's hospital in the world?" They say Great Ormond Street. Yeah. And I do you ever hear anyone saying, oh, "It's a great hospital in Ormond Street," but the parking's yeah, brutal. No, the parking is brutal, and the parking is brutal. Well, I mean, I'm sure the parking. I'm sure there's very little parking at Great Ormond Street in London, uh, and yet it has an unrivaled um, international reputation. Uh, and uh, the point being you know, that the, point being, mo- that the, the hospital being, is is more in a important. Way, in a way, people 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 see themselves as being almost married to their cars, and that they can't envisage other ways of getting around. Uh, and and we have to open our, our our minds to other possibilities. And there are other possibilities of getting there apart from in a car. As I said, in, in an emergency situation, an ambulance is obviously preferable to anything else because that has relatively free movement through the traffic. Uh, last question. You're obviously a planning expert, an environmental expert, rather than a medical expert. We're going to be talking to a medical expert in a moment. If you had a choice of where to build it, where would it have been? I would have put it on the site of the old Player Wills factory on the South Circular Road. Uh, with not old, that far from Not St. that James far away. In, in fact, very close to uh, the Coombe um, Hospital, the Coombe Maternity Hospital, um, where there's a much larger site available uh, and where it could have been plugged in to both the Coombe uh, Maternity Hospital and James's, which in a way is not that far away. It's a less tight site. There was about 20 acres of land available there. But if the children's hospital is not going to be developed on that, surely there will be plans to develop housing, which is a major need in Dublin now, on oh, that site. OK, we'll leave it there. Frank MacDonald, former Environment Editor of the Irish Times. Thanks indeed for coming in to us. The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business. The two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie uh, today is National Poetry Day and to mark the events, uh, to mark that there's events taking place uh, across the country throughout the day. Um, but we wanted to talk about poetry, how relevant it is in Ireland today, if people still read poetry in large numbers. Uh, we're joined by one of the country's uh, best known poets, uh, Tony Curtis. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for coming in. Hello Shane, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Um, like, poetry, is it? Is it relevant to many people today or, or is oh, it yes. sort of... Pa- po- poetry will always be the repository, the medicine chests for the soul. But the word poetry is like the word radio. You know, you sometimes hear people and they say, I don't like poetry. That's like saying I don't like radio. There's so many uh, types yeah. and so much uh, range. The other day was Shakespeare's 400 birthday and they had the BBC put on a, a night of, of Shakespeare and they had everything from chaps doing rap, rap, uh, you know, rapping uh, Shakespeare, dancers... Musicians, they had that horrible histories people on. Yeah. Very funny, <laughs> very uh, good, oh, yeah. fantastic. So poetry, it covers the word. It's such a, uh, you know, covers such a huge range. Even my, one of my favorite poets, Marianne Moore, she has a great poem called Poetry, and the first line is, "I too dislike it." It just because you write poetry doesn't mean you love it all. It's like saying you love all football teams or you love all. It's a huge um, range. And even if the, if the audience are out there and you have somebody out there saying, I don't like poetry. And then you say to them, well, fairy tale in New York. Oh, yeah, I love that song. And I say, well, take away the music. Uh, Raglan yeah, Road. Do, do, do you know, you, um, Ro- yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, do you think like, you know, like say rap, for example, is that poetry? For, oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is at the moment in, the, in there. And that's probably as, as that rapper gets older. 
it might slowly fade away. I started, I didn't start off in it one day when I was a little fellow doing the poetry. You know, I started with doing music. I started writing songs. I thought I was the future of rock and roll. But I'm a failed rock and roll star. So now when I go on to do my poetry readings, yeah, I just have to imagine in my head that the drummer is behind me, the bass player is there and the guitarist is there and I'm just doing the vocals. So... And, uh, yeah, well look, you, you take a very sort of democratic view to um, to poetry. But do you think people are sort of a little intimidated by no, poetry? No, well, I think they are if they don't know about it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's when you Once you get to know it, once you find a poet you like... Yeah, that's a great uh, starting point. A lot of people come to they hear a poet like Paul Meehan, uh, the great poet laureate at the moment, and and afterwards they say that was brilliant. I didn't know poetry could be like that. You know, I get that a lot. But even if I do uh, poetry reading, people will come up to me afterwards and say that was really good, as as if surprised by the by it's storytelling. The Irish uh, the Irish poetry is, um, it's like the weather. It's, you know, we are. Um, big patches of grey little patches of blue when you find a poem you really like I think that's that's when you're, uh, it comes alive to you it, oh, uh, you oh, know okay. um, lots of text coming in uh, one listener says I love the poetry of Paul Durkin I, I have yeah to Paul read. is it yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's funny my experience of Paul Durkin is when, when my mother was dying and I was in hospital mm. and we, we were visiting her all the time and yeah. I was you know, just sitting there at, at the bed and she, she was asleep and there was a, a Paul Durkin book of poetry and I picked it up mm. and I read it for the next two yeah. hours and it was just it was incredible it, it, and it I, incredible, I wouldn't be someone yeah. who, who would read a lot of poetry and he's, am, he's amazing to go and see him because when he's on he's like Bob Dylan when he's on stage he doesn't talk he'll say he'll say now like occasionally say thank you but that you, you realise that he is just uh, he's just going from poem to poem they're, they're so filled with story and, and uh, very funny and very sad brilliant yeah. uh, Martin from Atlone says Humpty Dumpty is my favourite poem well, if that's what gets you know, that's it's a great little poem. If he, you know, if he likes that, you know, I've yeah, I read enough. better. But yeah, um, <laughs> Kieran says uh, I asked my husband to write me a poem, expecting a roses are red ode and a bit of skit. Mm-hmm. Instead, I got the following, which I absolutely love: Undercover, deep breaths in the still of the night, slowly shuddering to a grounding halt, explosions of passion, ecstasy, and delight, revealing of our souls, touching, holding, feeling without fault. Underneath and undercover, together bonded forever lovers. Mm. That's not bad, is that's it? That's not bad. It's very interesting. Yeah, that's not bad to at all. Fact, yeah. uh, fair play to you, uh, Kieran, and um, mm. fair play to your husband as well. Uh, my favourite poem: How do I know my life is spent? My get up and go, got up and went. Is that too? No, for you. Yeah. Is that too short? No, no such thing as a short poem. A poem is as long as it has to be. That's a very important thing. Yeah. And even even today now being Poetry Day, when I was young, I I I, I didn't wasn't a great supporter of Poetry Day. I thought every day, every day should be Poetry, poetry day. day, and then there should be one no Poetry Day. So I used to do Poetry Day. I used to do the following Saturday, which was World Mental Health Day. I thought that was a much better day to do it. You know, one day a year for World Mental Health. But uh, now. I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to do and I'm happy that so many people get involved it's great, a great day today um, Paul Jarlin were telling me there's hundreds of r- readings going on uh, all over the country I know my, my own friend uh, Michael Cody is down in Nina I know Paul Amin is out in UCD with, with, with his students I know all sorts there's cards being produced there's poetry on the dart there's uh, raining poetry out mm. there Okay, well, listen. Let, mm. Why don't we have a little bit of poetry from from yourself? From myself, uh, yeah. No, no better man. Yeah, I know you've a, you've a, a relatively new book. Of I have a new book yet. out called um, "Approximately in the Key of C." Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I read. I could read it, or else I could do one. Maybe that people might relate to. It's about uh, 
my, my computer crashed one day, one day. I think everyone can relate everyone to that. Yeah. that. And, and what happened? Uh, so I was writing a new book and then uh, the computer crashed. And I knew that when my wife came home, she'd asked me the question she always asks when I, I tell her the computer has crashed. So I wrote a poem called uh, Unusually Dusty. And it's about my computer. So it goes like this. Unusually Dusty. My computer crashed last night. It was as if the house burned down, but no fire brigade arrived, no ambulance. No detectives came to dust for prints. No pri- priest called to tell me he was sorry for my troubles. Just you, standing in the doorway asking, did you back it up? <laughs> and I had to say, I hadn't even indicated, hadn't even put it into reverse. Don't say you've lost everything. You can't have lost a new manuscript. Well, not exactly. The dusty scribe who lives inside of me, that flustering old pedant, who likes the sound of dust settling, who finds words frayed things unequal to their task. He wrote it all down in a slow, doddery way, word by word, with pen and ink. Acoustic, you might say, before it all went electric. <laughs> Brilliant. So, yeah. I think, every, as you say, everyone can identify yeah. with that. Uh, lots of text uh, coming in. Our guest is uh, is the poet Tony Curtis. It is National Poetry Day. Uh, one listener says, uh, Ballad of Reading Jail, powerful, oh, yes. still remembered from yes. the Intercert 1988. We did uh, a short version. We yeah. didn't know the whole poem at school. We, yeah. we, uh, in, in, in the soundings, we just had a little, little, uh, little snippet. Do you remember it to this day? I do remember the poem. Oh, yes. Yeah, you remember a, a par- powerful poem, but I wouldn't be able to say it. But yeah, okay. uh, powerful. Uh, John McGee in Killarney says, uh, what is Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, or you too, for that matter? But poets, mm. uh, Jimmy McCarthy or John Spillane, oh, songwriters yeah. are the main contemporary poets yeah. and poetry is still uh, hugely popular. Uh, Michael and Claire says, my favourite is The Red Wheelbarrow by William Carlos Williams. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a, a, a very a short poem. Okay, uh, Una in Galway says, if you want to know how people relate to poetry, come to Galway. Of course, uh, Aidan, a poet, uh, Rita Ann Higgins opened poetry for the uh, ordinary experience yes. of life. She was on the Late Late Show last uh, last Friday night. Oh, was she? I was talking to her yesterday. Oh, really? She's, okay. she's been going around the country saying, uh, she says the whole country, everybody's seen her. And uh, great. Lovely text here from Ailish and Nace. Uh, my favourite poem is one my father wrote for me following a walk together when I was five. A while ago now. He's passed on now and I love to read it. Too long for me to send to you, but really beautiful. Th- that's it's lovely. That's but what poetry he, that, is that's about, all, isn't it? That's exactly what poetry Seamus Heaney's poem about uh, his father, after his father died, when he, he lived out there in Sandy Mount. Seamus. And he'd look out the window of his house and when his father went out for a walk one day, his father being the cattle draw, uh, man, he had the ash plant and when the tide was out and his father went for the walk, he left that dotted line all over the, all over the beach. And uh, obviously his father left and the tide came in. But uh, Seamus said, uh, the dotted line my father's ash plant made on Sandy Mount Strand is something else the tide won't wash away. Yeah. You know, the memory yeah. of it. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, yeah. Um, Alan in Waterford says, Muhammad Ali claimed the shortest poem with me, we. No, but we the favorite. The, they say the best short poem is one called ants. Yeah. Uh, oh no, fleas. 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 Adam, had him. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. You know, even rhymes. There's <laughs> uh, yeah. a text coming in saying poetry me arse, which is a poem in itself, really. When oh, you yes, think about it. Yeah. Um, a poetry suggestion from a listener: Fuzzy Wuzzy was a bear. Fuzzy Wuzzy had no hair. Fuzzy Wuzzy wasn't fuzzy wazzy. Mm. Yeah. No, it, 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 yeah, probably if you're going for short poems, the haiku are, are, are probably uh, the best. John Cooper Clark has a great 
a poem. It was a haiku with 17 syllables, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. Or you can go, uh, a blackbird's sweet song, lost in the wildness of hills, prayer for the dead. But then John Cooper Clark has a great one where he says, to make a haiku with only 17 syllables is very different. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, great, yeah. I like it. Uh, Brendan says, uh, lovely reading uh, by you of Yeats. Uh, I, I'd read a little bit yes. of uh, Yeats, um, September 19th. I still have my copy of Soundings and look at it. Yeah, I actually have a copy of Soundings myself as well. I Brendan. Have soundings, yeah. yeah, something to be said for education. There is something yeah. to be said for education. Ask him how many education. women poets were in Sounding. Oh, you remember? Uh, not too many. There was one. Uh, and and I you know think, who it was? Uh, I'm going to think of it now. Um, a very dark, very dark Emily Dickinson. Yeah, brilliant poem. I have a poem in my new book for Emily Dickinson. Really? Yeah. Uh, Newell O'Connor has a great book, bo- Miss Emily, a great uh, novel published this year about Emily Dickinson. But I have a poem about uh, what I like to do. She always dressed in white. I always dressed in black and white. Mm. And, uh, Tell uh, me, just, just to finish... Um, There'll be people listening today who who'll sort of go, yeah, you know what? Yeah, like I should read more poetry. And mm-hmm. it is when you hear those kind yeah. of poems and you hear well, you reading it. What, what, like, what's a good starting point? What would you recommend? Obviously, well, Niall McMonagle has my new book, <laughs> approximately. Yeah. yeah, Niall McMonagle's book that he did re- uh, re- recently, um, called Wind Harp, and that ha- that's uh, um, 1916 to 2016, and it has a great uh, rainbow of poets, starting off with Project Pierce the Wayfarer. Uh, and then ending with whoever it ends with but it's a great if you want to start just something to dip into um, there's, there's heaps you can just go, go along to the, the, any t- the books upstairs down the road always yeah. has poetry readings poetry readings there last night uh, just okay. go, go to the library get a book Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Tony Curtis, always Thank a pleasure you, having Shane. you. And thanks so Thank much you. for coming into us on National Poetry. Thanks for all those texts as well, particularly yeah. that one from Ailish and Nace. I just, you brought a lump yeah. into my throat, Ailish, I have to say. Very, very nice, very, very touching. Um, we, I do a top five book uh, podcast, uh, Tony, on my the, the Sunday show mm-hmm. on, on Newstalk, where people talk that their top five books. A lot of people, uh, or a number of people, uh, our contributors, have uh, mentioned works of, of poetry. De- Declan Kybert a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. WB8. Brian Dobson, the, the newsreader, mm-hmm. was in with us as well. Well, he was he included yeah. one of his top five books was the work of the Mayo poet Richard Murphy. Uh, oh, yeah, we're just going to we're going to yeah. play out this yeah. item with um, uh, Brian Dobson uh, and that poem uh, "Sailing into an Island." Here's Brian Dobson, as you've probably yeah. never heard him before. Accessible like all fine poetry. The structure of the poem brings you into the sense of the of what he's describing. So you feel the boat. He talks about uh, how they head off. They're actually trying to get to Clare Island, I think, is the original destination that they're heading to. And uh, because the weather turns against them, they have to run for cover into Inishboffin. And he describes how they, uh, later I reach a room, he writes, where the moon stares through a cobwebbed window. The tide has ebbed. Boats are careened in the harbour. Here is a bed. The Right Hook Podcast With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200 All with a leading 5-year commercial warranty Mitsubishimotors.ie